This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump have at least one thing in common, a perceived enemy. All this free trade. You know what? It's free trade for them, not free trade for us. We're losing our shirts. I will not send any trade deals to Congress that will make it easier for corporations to shut down in this country and move abroad. Yes, the politics of free trade are front and center this election year. But the actual impacts of trade take some teasing out. CPR's Megan Verlee recently set out to learn how global trade shapes Colorado. And here is what she found. It's a quintessential Colorado scene. A dusty feedlot packed with wary-looking calves far out on the eastern plains. Grant Bledsoe's family has owned this Yuma County operation since the 1940s. This is what hungry calves sound like? Yep, they're just getting ready to go to grass for the summertime. These steers will eventually be going a lot further than that, or at least parts of them will. It's just amazing. Some of the products that get sold around the world, big demand for the diaphragm, the stomach uh, tripe to Mexico. The hide is a big thing that gets exported to, say, China. Bledsoe estimates the international market can add anywhere from three to $700 in value to each animal. Sometimes that's the difference between a profit and a loss. We've kind of been depending on that export market here for the last several years when the supplies of cattle have been tight and the world economy has kind of been on the rise. We've seen a huge benefit. I came out here because this cattle operation is a clear way to illustrate how deeply entwined Colorado's economy is with global markets. And for the state's ranchers, that relationship could expand under a pending trade deal, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP. It would lower some major tariff barriers to selling beef in Asia. Agriculture is just one of many sectors the trade deal would touch. All told, more than 5,700 Colorado companies currently export their products or services, and nearly half of what they're sending abroad goes to countries covered by the TPP. Stephanie Dibsky with the state's trade office says all that exporting breeds a more resilient economy. Because we're not only competing with one another, but now we're competing with companies from all over the world. So that encourages and almost requires our companies to innovate. Not every company succeeds. Colorado has lost around 45,000 manufacturing jobs in the past 15 years, in part due to competition from China and other countries. But that sector has been growing again in recent years. Dibsky says a lot of the credit goes to Colorado's highly educated workforce. The state has one of the highest percentages of college graduates in the country. Here in Colorado, we've seen a lot of advancements in what we term advanced manufacturing, so sort of higher tech, higher skilled manufacturing jobs, which is exciting. If you want to see what advanced manufacturing looks like in Colorado, Think Labs Medical and Centennial is a good place to visit. Clive Smith founded the company more than 25 years ago to make digital stethoscopes. This is very unusual. You've probably never seen a production floor that looks like this. No, I haven't, because it really just looks like a few long, cluttered tables in the middle of the office. A row of small 3D printers sculpt the body of the stethoscope from hot plastic. Two women nearby carefully fit components together and test their work. The company has about 10 employees, and all of them have at least a college degree. Smith originally manufactured his stethoscope overseas in China. But two years ago, he decided to build them in-house to have more control over quality and to speed up innovation. We can discover that 
something's happening and we think we can improve it, we can have a roundtable discussion and we can change it that day. The price of ThinkLab stethoscopes doubled when production came stateside. But the product improved too, so Smith says customers were willing to pay. His current challenge is how to navigate international regulations that keep him from selling more overseas. Smith's stethoscope already has FDA approval, but he needs European certification, too. That requires lots of paperwork, time, and money. He's holding out hope for the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the forthcoming Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. I think that those agreements have got the potential to make it much more seamless, that once you get approval for a medical device, it's essentially going to be covering many, many countries. That's the thing about big multinational trade deals. They go way beyond the basic stuff, like tariffs and import quotas. They touch every aspect of doing business across borders. For Colorado companies like Think Labs, that's great. Reducing regulatory headaches overseas will help them expand. But when it comes to how trade deals might affect regulations here at home, Colorado environmentalists like Sam Schombacher are concerned. We at Food and Water Watch believe that the Trans-Pacific Partnership will undermine our food safety regulations, will mean more fracking next to homes and schools here in Colorado, and will erode our local democratic decision-making policy when it comes to our food and water. Environmental groups have been front and center fighting the implementation of the TPP. Schaubacher says the deal would have some specific impacts on Colorado. For one, it would increase the export market for natural gas. That could lead to more drilling here. For another, it would allow foreign companies to challenge local environmental regulations if those measures cut into the company's profits. In Colorado, the state has already taken local governments to court over fracking bans. Under these deals, multinational companies could get in on the game, too, suing in a special trade tribunal. That's already the policy under NAFTA. And Schaubecker says companies do use it. He points to a U.S. oil and gas firm that recently went after Quebec. Because the province had put a moratorium on fracking, this company sued the province of Quebec for $200 million in damages. But boosters of international trade deals, like Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper, dismiss that fear as overblown. Hickenlooper believes Colorado stands to gain much more than it might lose under pending trade deals. And he's not happy with what he's been hearing from some of the presidential candidates. To be blunt, I am concerned. I'm not saying that we shouldn't look at making sure that we protect jobs in Colorado, making sure that the system is fair. But commerce between two countries throughout history has always, almost always, led to improving quality of life for both sides. Most economists would agree with Hickenlooper. Trade generally has broad benefits. For Americans, it's made our TVs and smartphones way cheaper. But this year, that argument is struggling to find a receptive audience, as voters turn their attention more to trade's casualties, the laid-off workers and disrupted industries it can leave behind. And we're going to hear more about those casualties in just a moment. But first, Megan Verlee is in the studio. And uh, Megan, I want to ask you to elaborate on something, that this presidential election has turned into a trade referendum. It really has in a lot of ways. You have Donald Trump and and Bernie Sanders decrying the impact of past trade deals and warning about the TPP. Uh, You have uh, Secretary Clinton reversing course on the Trans-Pacific 
Pacific Partnership. Uh, Ted Cruz is also against it. And this is a big shift to see all the major candidates standing against a trade deal because in the past, Republicans and Democrats have generally supported trade for different reasons. Republicans, because it's sort of a pro-business outlook and Democrats, it's a a pro-internationalist outlook. But these candidates are... are, uh, Catching up with with public opinion to some degree, which has started to shift away from international trade and international trade deals, something that started in the last recession. And now just barely more than half of Americans support, uh, say that trade has been good for the country. That's according to to Pew Research. Uh, And almost 40 percent say it's been bad. So, uh, you know, and I think one thing that's kind of interesting is we've seen that in the comments on this story and on trade coverage that National Public Radio is doing, lots of folks saying that trade deals are written to benefit corporations and not individuals. And so economic uncertainty is part of this change of opinion. Exactly. I think this larger economic uncertainty of our times is feeling that there are fewer good-paying jobs out there for American workers, especially American workers without a college education. People want to know what's changed. And when they look around and see everything in their house has a made-in-somewhere-else label, well, trade's a pretty easy culprit to pick. Well, Megan, you talked to some of the workers who've lost jobs to trade, and who are they? Well, let's start with Venus Romero and Vanessa Abdraman. They're best friends, and I recently met them at a Starbucks in Thornton. It's close to a place that has a lot of memories for them. Right out the window, we can see the building of the T-Mobile where we used to work. Romero and Abdraman met at that former T-Mobile call center. They were both there for more than a decade, steadily piling up the raises until they were making around $24 an hour. That was until the spring of 2014, when word came the company was moving their jobs to the Philippines. Abdraman was suddenly unemployed. At that time, I was a single mom. I had three sons. I was taking care of my dying mother. I didn't go to college, so I thought, what am I going to do? How am I going to take care of my family? I was physically sick, emotionally sick, like, it it was horrible. I had no clue what I was going to do. What Abdraman and Romero decided to do was take advantage of the Trade Adjustment Assistance Program. It's a federal effort that pays for up to two years of education for people whose jobs have moved overseas. Around 4,500 Coloradans have used it in the last 15 years. The friends decided to get certified as respiratory technicians, in part because that's work you can't send overseas. But it wasn't easy. Abdraman says she was so overwhelmed by the whole situation, she cried through most of the classes they took that first year. My teachers would always be looking at her like, why is she crying? I'm like, I just don't get it. <laughs> it was horrible. She was, like, it wasn't loud crying. It was just silent tears just streaming down her face. The women made it through, though, and they now work together at St. Joseph's Hospital. They make slightly more than they did at their old jobs, and they're a lot happier. I like my job a heck of a lot more. It's a lot easier to go to work than it ever was working in a call center. Oh, by far. I look forward to, once I'm at work, I literally look forward to my day. This is how boosters of free trade say it's supposed to work. Low-skill, low-paying jobs move overseas and are replaced by higher-skill, higher-wage work here at home. But the federal program these women use to move up has plenty of critics. For one thing, it only benefits a fraction of the people who lose their jobs to trade. That's because many workers can't afford to live on unemployment insurance while they go to school. Or they live in places where there are few available jobs for their new skills. Or they're too close to retirement to imagine starting over. That's how Bob Knapp felt. He was laid off by Samsonite after 40 years with the company, 
when the luggage maker moved its Denver area facility to Mexico. I figured if I took two years of schooling, I'd be a 62-year-old, and I didn't figure I was marketable. So it was kind of a rough two or three years till I got old enough to draw Social Security. For Knapp, the result was an early and unwilling retirement. He's the kind of guy who works hard to make sure the things he buys are made in America, from his clothes to his car. But it's not easy. It's something he thinks about sometimes when he finds himself driving alongside train tracks. You would see those unnumbered tolls of trains coming in with nothing but boxcars of foreign goods. And you turn around and you go into the store to drive an American something. It's hard to do anymore. Government retraining efforts also don't do anything for the wider communities hurt by the offshoring of jobs. In Pueblo right now, hundreds of steel workers are idle. It's a situation the company blames in part on China dumping cheap steel on the international market. And in the past few decades, entire industries have disappeared from the state so completely Many have no idea they were ever here. Did you know Colorado used to make a lot of clothes? I didn't, until I talked with Jack Makovsky. He started working in Colorado's textile industry in the 1970s. You could go all the way east down the Arkansas River, all the way to into Kansas. There was a factory in every little town. They were making something. There was sports business. There was pajamas. There was dresses. There was ski wear, a lot of that. Makovsky says those facilities started to move overseas in the 1980s to China, Mexico, and the Caribbean. But in recent years, he's seen a few signs of hope. The demand is growing stateside for specialty sewing. You're not going to be any more in this country making the thousand-man shop. But people have stuff that are more expensive, more styled, uh, more creative type things. You'll see a lot of that happening. One place that's trying to take advantage of the growing specialty textile trade is the Rural Colorado Apparel Manufacturing Center. It's in the small town of Ray near the Nebraska border. Private investors opened the cut-and-sew shop earlier this year, and now part-time workers sit at its half-dozen high-tech sewing machines. Darlene Carpio with the Yuma County Economic Development Corporation says the goal is to meet the needs of Colorado designers who have smaller product lines. It doesn't really make sense for them to send this overseas, to send it to China or Bangladesh. They want to get it made at home, and what they were finding out very quickly is that resource for production is very limited here. When it comes to finding a market for their products, Carpio is inspired by other buy-local movements. This enterprise hopes to extend the farm-to-table idea to include workshop-to-closet. I think if we could put that story out there, that you are supporting jobs right here at home, you're supporting skills here at home, I think the consumer will be supportive of that. If the Ray Center succeeds, economic development directors across the plains hope to replicate it in their towns. And many economists would argue that one reason Colorado consumers can afford to pay a bit more for made-in-Colorado apparel is because trade has lowered the cost of most other consumer goods. All those cheap electronics from Asia leave more money in people's pockets to buy some local clothes. I'm Megan Verlee, CPR News. That story is part of A Nation Engaged, an NPR project focused on election year issues. Learn more about it and share your thoughts on free trade at cprnews.org. And we'll be right back with a Colorado crime story that is so much more, which is why it won a Pulitzer Prize. This is Colorado Matters. 
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. An Unbelievable Story of Rape is the title of an investigation published by ProPublica, and it has won a Pulitzer Prize. What makes the story unbelievable is how the victim of a serial rapist was treated by police, essentially pressured to recant her story. T. Christian Miller co-wrote the article with a reporter at the Marshall Project, which covers criminal justice. Their story also focuses on top-notch police work. Let's listen back to my conversation from December when the piece was published, a note that it contains some graphic descriptions. T, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. So this serial rapist had victims in two states, Colorado and Washington. He is serving a 300-year sentence at Colorado Sterling Correctional Facility. And to understand this story, you have to understand how Mark O'Leary operated. He was meticulous. How so? He was a serial rapist in every sense of that term. And by that, I mean he had a real pattern that he would do uh, with each of his various victims. He would typically begin by spending hours uh, stalking them, essentially, learning their habits, actually breaking into their homes before the actual attack to learn details about them. When the attack happened, he would bring in uh, what he called a a, a rape kit, and, and this is sort of difficult to talk about, but he had cameras and material that he would use to assault the victims with. And then over a long period, a three-hour period, um, he would repeatedly rape uh, these victims, both in, as you pointed out, in the state of Washington and in Colorado. And he would usually end by saying, if you go to police, I will release the photos I've taken uh, to the internet to embarrass your children or embarrass your family. And that was a very clear pattern. He just did over and over again. He would make his victims shower with the idea of getting rid of evidence. And O'Leary deliberately targeted women in different police jurisdictions. Here in Colorado, that was in Golden and Westminster, Aurora, and then two different communities in Washington. Why the different jurisdictions? This, too, was part of how meticulous he was. Yeah, he had spent a lot of time uh, researching how police in America investigate rape. And he had learned, as we have written a couple stories of at at ProPublica and the Marshall Project, that um, police often don't talk to each other in different jurisdictions. And so he would deliberately go to each, uh, commit each rape in a different uh, law enforcement jurisdiction in the hopes that the law enforcement agencies wouldn't sort of talk to each other about the similarity rapes that were occurring in their own backyards. Uh, And he hoped that that would sort of basically throw police off his track. And it did for a long time. Jurisdictions weren't aware of what was happening in other places. Uh, You quote the rapist as saying that he would have been a person of interest, for instance, if Washington had paid more attention to the case of a young woman there. She's really the central character in this story. Uh, We'll call her Marie, as you do in the article. She was uh, O'Leary's first victim in 2008. She was 18 years old at the time and had lived in foster care for most of her life. After she was attacked, the police and people close to her, her former foster parents, became doubtful of her story. What made them doubt her story of rape? Yeah, that was kind of one of the most interesting parts of of the piece we did. Um, The foster mothers who had taken care of Marie both had seen at different times displays of her being sort of um, wanting attention, let's say, not too difficult than a lot of teenage uh, kids. But when the um, rape happened... Both of the women responded to comfort Marie. Uh, they were both sort of taken aback by things Marie did that uh, didn't fit their idea of what a quote-unquote normal rape would look like. So they were thrown off, uh, for instance, by 
um, Marie seemed very f- emotionally flat and wasn't really screaming or, or running around tearing out her hair about what had happened. And so they saw that as being like, why aren't you so re- reacting more strongly to that uh, incident? And one of the things we get into an unbelievable story of rape is that there really is no stereotypical response to rape. It, mm-hmm. uh, women can have all sorts of a variety of reactions. Um, and the mothers in this case were, were sort of buying into an outdated stereotype about how a woman should react. So on that basis, they then contacted the police, who themselves had sort of similar questions and were operating a similar world of stereotypes about rape, and told them that they had some questions about Marie's story. Um, and the police told us that that kind of was what really motivated them to begin not believing Marie's story at all. And at that point in time, they, they began to believe that Marie was making up the story. And there are other behaviors that she engages in that make people doubt her story, but that you find are typical for rape victims, including confusing the finer points of the story. Their story may change over time, uh, which I suppose has something to do with the trauma they suffered. Yeah, one of the the things that's pretty well known now is that rape victims often also uh, end up suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, the trauma of assault itself is so powerful that it kind of actually affects the brain chemistry and how the brain is able to process information. So, for instance, some women during the rape can't remember the assaults, the attacker's face, for instance, because they're focusing on, let's say, a lamp to kind of take their mind off of where they are so they can't actually describe the person who was attacking them. Um, or they remember things out of order and things don't come in the exact right order as, as they actually happened. And in this particular case, Marie made a which is, which is in retrospect, a pretty small error of recollecting when she was tied up that convinced the police that she must be um, lying because she had told two slightly different versions of how she was tied up and how she got, got freed. And she winds up actually being charged with filing a false report. How often does that happen? Yeah, that's one of the questions we tried to answer, Ryan. And it's not, nobody really keeps that data. What we know is that if you look at academic studies, the percentage of women or percentage of rape cases that are ruled, legitimately ruled as never having happened at all, hovers around 5%, 8%. It depends on the study, although there are studies which show much higher and as well as much lower. So that, that, we know false reports happen. We know they, they do occur. Hmm. Um, in this particular case, the extraordinary, the unusual thing at least was that she was actually arrested for false reporting. Um, again, we don't have a good sense of how many, how often that happens, but it's not super common because a lot of police agencies are, are reluctant to file a false reporting charge for a lot of good reasons we can talk about. So yes, in this case, the police went ahead and they filed a false reporting charge against her. It was a misdemeanor charge in the state of Washington, and she had to, to uh, deal with that. And as you say, uh, without having the specific numbers, we can, we can say that that's fairly rare uh, that a victim is arrested in that way. This story... Uh, an unbelievable story of rape, as you title it, is also about good police work, uh, largely here in Colorado, particularly the work of Detective Stacy Galbraith in Golden. She has a simple rule when it comes to the credibility of rape victims. What is that rule? Yeah, that was the, uh, the, the, the really nice thing about this story. Was it was a story about how police in, in one uh, state had let a rapist slip through the cracks and, and the police, various police agencies in Colorado had, had done quite the opposite. And Stacey Galbraith was a detective in Golden uh, who had one of the case, the rape cases, where uh, the individual had attacked a, a young engineering student. And she, the engineering student told this story. And, and I think some people may have thought the story was so fantastical in some ways because uh, it involved a stranger dressed in black breaking into her house. 
whatever that case may be, Stacy didn't take it at all like that. She just um, had this rule that she told us that she listens to her victims and then she checks out the story. And even if it might sound strange, or the victim might not be reacting in a way that um, some people might expect a right victim to react, her philosophy is just take it on its face as it is and then begin doing the detective work of checking out that story and can you verify that story, can you back up that story. Uh, and that's what she did. And it was through, gosh, a series of almost coincidences that she's able to link the rape uh, in her jurisdiction to others in Colorado and to begin to piece together that this is a serial rapist. Yeah, it was just uh, incredible detective work. Um, so when Stacy got uh, her case, which was in, in January of 2011, she went home that night to talk to her husband, David Galbraith, who works in the Westminster Police Department. And just by chance, the attacker had attacked a woman in Westminster uh, several months prior. So when Stacy was describing, you know, what the rape has, uh, her husband heard, you know, was like, hey, I think we have a rape just like that or an incident very similar to that in um, Westminster. And that, that nighttime talk between spouses is what made Stacy the next day reach out to the Westminster Police Department and get in touch with um, a detective named Edna Hendershot who had handled this case, and they began to get together and compare notes. You said at the beginning of our conversation that this is something that's often lacking in law enforcement, communication among jurisdictions about cases that might be similar and point to cases of serial rape. And so this happened very unofficially between a husband and wife, as opposed to officially through, I don't know, computer systems talking to each other or something like that. Yeah, that's so. Uh, in this particular case, I would say that in looking at Colorado, Colorado does have, um, or at least the Denver area, Denver Metro- Metropolitan uh, Police Agencies, uh, have a system that is designed to sort of like overcome that, that hurdle, and they have sort of a joint listserv they all talk to. Oh. So in this case, in the first case, it was kind of an initial thing, but Edna had actually known about another case in Aurora that she had investigated with um, Scott Burgess, a detective in Aurora, and she had known about that through more of a formal sort of a, a one police officer telling another police officer, hey, there's a similar cases here. But it, all that aside, it was still an amazing bit of detective work to kind of bring all these cases together and understand that there was one person behind all these different attacks. And it involves all kinds of, of gumshoe work, uh, including looking at shoe prints and identifying what sneaker might have been involved in the crime. Eventually, this coalition of law enforcement in Metro Denver arrest uh, O'Leary. They search his computer. They find photos of victims. And this is what allows the Colorado detectives to identify the Washington case in which this young woman, Marie, has essentially recanted her story of rape. But they're able to find evidence that it in fact happened. Yeah, that was kind of the just uh, amazing moment of the story is that uh, they've arrested this guy, as you said, Ryan. The, the detectives are looking through files, pictures he has of his various victims, and they find this one picture, and one of the pictures he had taken was a picture of this woman's driver's license. And the Colorado detectives are looking at these, these images, and they say, who is this woman? And then, boom, there's her license plate, and it says Linwood, Washington, which was the town where she had the, the first victim of Mark O'Leary had been living. And they were able to call up the police there in Washington who had remember, had not believed uh, Marie, had actually filed false reporting charges against her, right. and they had to call these uh, police up and say, officers up and say, looks like she was telling the truth because we have uh, pictures of this guy actually assaulting her, and here's her driver's license. And very briefly, 
Did Marie get some kind of settlement? What did she get for the dual pain and suffering of having gone through a rape and then essentially been arrested for false reporting when it wasn't false? Yeah, no, she got a settlement finally um, just about two years ago, um, about $125,000. She got an apology. The Linwood Police Department has expressed their embarrassment and apology for missing this incident. And Marie today is sort of soldiering on, um, finally having had her name completely cleared. And again, Mark O'Leary, the serial rapist, serving a 300-year sentence now at Colorado Sterling Correctional Facility. Very briefly, T, it sounds like the takeaways here are the importance of law enforcement agencies uh, talking to each other and, in the case of investigating rape, trusting and verifying what victims say. Yes. I think the takeaway is when the victim walks in the door, treat that victim seriously until you have pretty firm evidence to do so otherwise. That is T. Christian Miller, senior reporter for ProPublica. He co-wrote the investigation titled An Unbelievable Story of Rape with Ken Armstrong of The Marshall Project. It has won them a Pulitzer Prize. There's a link to the article at cprnews.org. And we'll be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Imagine putting up a tent in space. It's not so far-fetched. A company called Bigelow Aerospace plans to send inflatable habitats into orbit. They'll travel aboard a rocket from United Launch Alliance based in Centennial, Colorado. The deal was announced at the Space Symposium in Colorado Springs earlier this month. Here to talk about this and other space news from the state is astronomer Doug Duncan. He directs the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder. Doug, welcome back. Good to be here, Ryan. So there's already one of these pop-up space pods aboard the International Space Station. As we speak, it'll be inflated next month. What are the advantages of inflatable rooms? Well, by far the biggest advantage is when they're collapsed, they're much smaller. You know, in the same way you Some people pull a trailer and pop up the top Mm -hmm. to give them more room. That's probably not too bad an analogy to the pop-up kind of building that Bigelow Aerospace has been working on actually for about 10 years. So it's not like they just did this. It took them that long to perfect something that's now being tested, will be tested very soon as a new room to the International Space Station. Okay, so it would be attached to the International Space Station, not free-floating. Exactly. It's very much like an extra room. When we say inflatables, I'm picturing a bouncy castle. That's not quite the right image, I suppose. Well, a bouncy castle is better than a balloon image, okay? Okay. But this is really tough stuff. It's kind of like the Kevlar in bulletproof vests, and it's many, many layers. So it's not as if it, you know, uh, shrinks down to the size of a balloon and then inflates 50 times bigger. Mm. It only is expanding two or three times in linear dimensions when they inflate it in space. But since it's so expensive to go into space, and since rockets are a finite size, it'd be kind of a shame if, if anyone who went to space would only have the room that's in, a, in the capsule of a rocket, right? That's right. what we did in the old days. Uh, but you don't want to live in a teeny tin can for weeks or months, So Bigelow and United Launch Alliance plan to launch a habitat, a sort of free-floating habitat in 2020 that will support six people and, as I said, orbit independently. What could something like that be used for? Well, first of all, it's quite quite a structure. Uh, It's about 45 feet long, and it's a cylinder, 
and it's over 20 feet in diameter. So this is getting up to a pretty reasonable size there in space. Okay. And it's that kind of thing that's going to make it possible in the future, more economical, somewhat economical, for people to go up and live for long periods of time and do all kinds of things. You know, they actually have lease rates posted on their website for companies. <sighs> Bigelow to, does. Bigelow does. To start to lease space in what – effectively would be a private space station. And that could be private research? Private research, manufacturing things that you can do in zero gravity, and I suppose ultimately some tourist business. Well, what's interesting here is that the idea of inflatable rooms began actually with NASA. In the 1990s, the space agency developed the TransHab program, but when it ran behind schedule and over budget, Congress cut off funding. And so you have Bigelow today, which was founded by a man who has made his fortune in budget suites hotels. And I find that it just somehow fitting, you know, that he's gone from uh, hotels all across the U.S., to futuristic ones in space. So is that the idea that there could be hotels in space? I, I think that's one of the things that's going to happen in space, no question. And uh, Mr. Bigelow is not the only one to have that idea, of course. There have been a handful of people who have paid their way to go up to the existing International Space Station. But uh, like most things technical, when the private sector gets involved, there'll be more innovation. Hopefully, the costs will come down. Uh, and so Bigelow is not the only one thinking of this. I, ha I had a little bit of fun. I found an interesting quote that I, some, of our reader, uh, some of our listeners may wish to guess who said this. At his high school graduation, when he was chosen valedictorian, someone said, I want to build space hotels, amusement parks, colonies, and get millions of people into orbit. Any any guesses who said that? It, it's it not, sounds like Elon Musk. I was just going to say it's not Elon Musk who also wants to do that and is doing that. But the person who said this is about as rich as Elon Musk, okay. maybe more, and is doing the same thing more privately but is doing it. Who is it? Uh, Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon. Of Amazon. Yeah. All right. He has a company called Blue Origins. So we have SpaceX. We have Blue Origins. And we have Bigelow Aerospace all doing this. Right. Bigelow Aerospace teaming up with another private company, United Launch Alliance, based in Colorado, to get one of these pods into space. What does that say about, boy, the role yeah. of the private sector in space? Is there a future for NASA? Uh, oh, there is. Uh, you know, one of the things that we haven't mentioned is all these people have hotels. Nobody has Uber. Okay. There isn't a way right now to fly people into orbit to these hotels. We're taking Russian vehicles to get up to the International Space Station. So in fact, there, there is a problem, according to the private sector, that they want better transportation to and from, and they're starting to work on that too. You know, the, the fact is NASA does certain things very well. NASA should be out at the edge of exploration. But because NASA is a public agency, I don't think it dares to be as innovative and, let's be honest, risk-taking as can happen in private. You know, uh, I did a little checking and 500 people roughly die a year in planes and 25,000 people a year die in cars. And we accept that. But if NASA killed even a fraction of those people, 
it's not as acceptable somehow. So I do think there's a double standard between NASA and the private sector. But to explore space, it needs NASA too. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and astronomer Doug Duncan is back on the program. He directs the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder, and he joins us regularly to talk about space science in Colorado. It's a big industry here. And speaking of the outer reaches of space, let's talk about the Cassini spacecraft, which is orbiting Saturn. And to study the moon Enceladus, which is covered with geysers, it Could, is, you know, and that's just so fascinating. This week, the last week of my class up at CU, we're talking about life in the universe. Okay. And pretty much everybody thinks that life, no matter what it looks like, requires water. Water enhances chemical reactions that are the basis of life. But these geysers anywhere. are not water geysers. They're dust geysers. No, they're actually salty water geysers. Okay. And there's stuff in the water. And the Cassini spacecraft wants to catch the stuff because – Obviously, if you catch the water from a geyser and it's got salt in it, you can start to figure out what's down there where the geyser erupted from. To look at the composition. Exactly. And so the real driver of catching the stuff is to see what's inside Enceladus, what the ocean is like. Could it possibly be conducive to life? But it seems that we have made a discovery about Enceladus that is quite remarkable. Well, in the process of catching the little bits of stuff in the water from Enceladus, we've caught lots of little pieces of dust, and roughly 36 pieces of dust seem to have come not from Enceladus, the moon of Saturn, or Saturn, or even the solar system, but to have come from interstellar space. 36 dust? pieces of dust. <laughs> I'm not even sure how you would count Most of our listeners would sweep those up and throw them out in spring cleaning, right? And so if they don't come from Saturn right, uh, or or the neighborhood, where do they come from? They come from the depths of space. And we know that there's lots of dust out there because all those beautiful Hubble pictures of the star-forming regions, the pillars of creation, the Orion Nebula, have beautiful uh, colored gas and dark places. And the dark places are all dust. And that is the basic stuff that the rocks and pebbles and asteroids and planets came from. So that's the raw material of our solar system. So that is evidence of the Big Bang, in other words. Well, it's evidence of the formation of our solar system. Okay. And we have it, like, in our hands, not in some picture, but it's been collected, which is great because we can look to see what it's made of. We have it in our hands. In, in our Cassini spacecraft hands. Right. Hands. So how would Cassini and the people operating it here on Earth possibly be able to to isolate these 30-some-odd grains of dust? I don't think. Well, or, they behave differently than the other stuff that's been collected from Saturn. They were traveling from uh, kind of a certain direction in space. As the spacecraft and, and as the Earth and Sun move around in the galaxy, we expect – a few of the pieces of interstellar space to run into us. The hard thing is catching them and knowing what they're made of, but Cassini has an instrument that can actually analyze dust as it's flying. We do this up in Boulder. We have an astronomer, Mihai Harani, who has built a big vacuum tank, and he actually shoots dust through it okay. to learn how dust uh, behaves in interstellar space. And so the instrument on Cassini can not only uh, look at the dust, but it, it can analyze to a pretty good degree what it's made of. 
Does Cassini have the equivalent of my Swiffer, like that that traps dust in some regard? Well, it's interesting. Catching dust, especially interstellar dust, is a real heroic feat. And the reason is the dust is traveling so fast. It's very easy for it to be um, just, you know, eradicated, shall we say. If you were to catch it in something very solid, the dust might very well vaporize because it's going 20 or 30 miles per second. But so you need something that's more like a liquid. We, we have uh, been experimenting for a while, uh, not only in space, but even on U-2 airplanes, which fly high in the atmosphere, mm-hmm. carrying this wonderful stuff called aerogel. An aerogel is super light, super soft, and it will catch little particles that come and embed themselves in the aerogel. Aerogel. And so Cassini has this? Uh, Cassini uh, analyzes its dust as it's flying. The aerogel, my favorite aerogel, is what's been flown at the top of the Earth's atmosphere and brought back. I think we have a picture on, on on the show website of aerogel. It's also called blue smoke. It's a hundred times lighter than water. It's just like catching a cloud, um, but it's pretty rigid. And stuff like interstellar dust, fast flying dust goes into it and gets trapped. And then we can look for it. Fascinating. So you can indeed see a picture of this blue smoke at cprnews.org. Right. And it's hard, by the way. And it's kind of fun because listeners, amateurs, can sign up to help the professional astronomers find the dust particles inside the aerogel. So imagine a block of styrofoam, but 10 times lighter than styrofoam and translucent. When the dust goes inside there and caught, it's in there somewhere. But it's a tiny piece of dust. And so through citizen science, they're having folks analyze this. Thousands of pictures of different parts of the aerogel, and you're looking for a little streak. And at the end of the streak is the piece of dust. A search for stardust. Indeed, and and for real. And uh, hundreds of volunteers have been doing this. And I have to say this whole idea of scientists cooperating with citizens is called citizen science. We put the pictures on the web. We let citizens do a little bit of training. And then they can start to work and make real discoveries. There is a link for the Stardust at Home project as well at cprnews.org if you would like to find some interstellar dust on your own. Doug, thanks so much for being with us. Always a pleasure, Ryan. Astronomer Doug Duncan directs the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder. He joins us regularly to talk about space science in Colorado. Your feedback is next in Loud and Clear. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Now to some of your feedback in loud and clear. The new train line to Denver's airport, which opened Friday, has some residents of Boulder and Broomfield wondering, what about us? In 2004, they voted to raise their own taxes to pay for a number of new rail lines in Metro Denver. Most will be built out by 2017, but not the one to Boulder and Longmont. 
We talked about that last week with a spokesman for the Regional Transportation District and with Longmont resident Karen Benker. We taxed ourselves. We've already paid RTD $260 million over the past 11 years, and we would like to have our rail line built in the near future. We're now asking RTD to build it within the next 10 years and not wait until 2042. 2042 is the current estimate for completion. On the CPR News Facebook page, many listeners sympathized with folks who want the B-Line completed sooner. One listener, Brian Wohler, took a slightly different tact, writing, As a resident of Longmont who's been paying taxes for the Longmont rail line, do I get a ride to the airport for free from Union Station? Zach Young of Denver came to RTD's defense. He wrote that the agency was able to build bus rapid transit to Boulder and Longmont, while also building rail to the airport, Arvada, Aurora, and North Glen. Young added, Overall, metro area coverage is much higher this way, and having these trains in place will really help when CDOT starts rebuilding I-70. Michael Shapiro of Denver has a suggestion for RTD. Go borrow the money, either from the local banks, you can borrow today at 3 to 4 percent, or to a bond and build the line out now because the cost of building a line that will be finished in 2042 will probably be three or four times what it would cost to build today. Turns out RTD has used some bonds already, according to spokesman Nate Curry, but he says the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, etched into the state constitution, means the agency can't do certain things to finish the Longmont line, or three other shorter segments that are still to be completed. Tabor prevents us from issuing bonds without taxpayer approval. Even if we were to issue bonds for any one of those projects, the four remaining, we wouldn't have enough money coming in to repay the bonds. So our revenue's not there yet. He doesn't expect voters would allow more bonds. And he says that banks haven't been interested in lending the more than a billion dollars needed just to build out the northwest section to Broomfield and Boulder counties. An update now on a cold case that appears to be thawing. Mike Rust was a pioneer in mountain biking. He was born in Colorado Springs, later started a bike shop in Salida, And when that place got too crowded, he moved to the San Luis Valley and built a house from scrap material. Then in 2009, he disappeared. For years, there weren't any real leads in the case, until a film called The Rider and the Wolf came out last year, which we featured. As long as we don't have answers, I feel that somebody needs to keep pushing and looking. I don't think we're going to find Mike. I I think... I hope we find Mike. That's, I, I just don't know what to say about that. Well, now the Rust family and the biking community have some closure. Rust's remains have been found, the Colorado Bureau of Investigation confirmed yesterday, after an anonymous tip came in. Rust's brother, Paul, who also owns a bike shop, told us Monday that he thinks the film played a part. A lot of people there in the valley saw it, and people in Salida, and of course of all, all the mountain film festivals have been showing it, so... I think that was the main contributor to somebody coming forward. Paul Rust says what's left of his brother's remains will be cremated. And then his ashes would be spread on his property in Sawatch, the 80 acres that he owned up there. The investigation into Mike Rust's death continues. Another update now, one that's much more upbeat. Last week, we met two teenage inventors from Denver, Oliver Greenwald and Sam Nassif. The boys created the Drip Drop, an edible ring that fits around ice cream cones to catch drips. 
Greenwald and Nassif appeared last Friday on the TV reality show Shark Tank to ask the billionaire judges to invest with them. They ran into some trouble. First, there was a camera shot of ice cream dripping from the drip drop. Then there were complaints that the product wasn't pretty or tasty enough. When the drama was over, though, the boys got their money from Judge Barbara Corcoran. I'd like to be your third partner for $50,000 with the contingency that you fix the design and the quality of that product. And the boys took the offer. They'll spend the money to hire a food engineer and to conduct market research. Finally, we got some nice messages about our interview last week with Governor John Hickenlooper. One came from Elaine Granada of Denver. She writes that we, quote, asked the difficult questions, would not cower before power, didn't get defensive when the governor mildly criticized the media, and stuck with a question until we got the answer. Especially, she says, when it came to the I-70 expansion project. If you want to send your praise or tell us where to dig deeper, get in touch on Twitter at Colorado Matters, Facebook, we are CPR News, and at CPRnews.org, you can email us or comment at the bottom of individual articles. That's the program for today. Our managing producer is Rachel Estabrook. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us.